Hello, welcome to Looking Over Life. I'm going to throw your snippet of a For What It's Worth episode in here at the very beginning. This is from episode two, a long time ago. Now, what do you exactly find so fascinating about that type of book? I'm sure quite a few people would probably find that as, as dry as dust. <laughs> uh Hmm. I don't know. I I just really find language fascinating. How how language works. How we came to where we are with the American language, for example, is is a long and and fascinating story. Mm-hmm. How how we have a um, a standard for spelling and a standard for grammar today, which is taken for granted. That 150 years ago was really not that big a thing and a thousand years ago just wasn't at all and i just find that sort of thing amazing to to consider that that you could have a language that wasn't widely standardized and so Mm -hmm. that sort of thing i i find incredibly fascinating communication and how to communicate more clearly is another aspect of that like how to use your words in a powerful way, maybe even using fewer mm-hmm. words than other people might to get the same idea across. Yeah. I, I know it's kind of a weird fascination, um, but I probably feel, <laughs> I probably feel that same feeling about um, chemistry. Although I, I find chemistry to be fascinating, but it just, I mean, incredible. Maybe that's a better way to say it, but it doesn't, it doesn't capture me. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the same same reason why you enjoy language is probably the same reason that I'm so fascinated with science. Knowing how things work, to me, is is quite, it's just, it, it's kind of like the scales drop from your eyes and all of a sudden you understand, <laughs> oh, so that's why, that's why this happens when you bake bread. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's quite interesting to me. Okay, James, this this uh, this episode, I don't know exactly how it's going to go. I feel um, a little, <laughs> I feel a little sleepy, honestly. <laughs> but we're supposed to be talking about um, uh, something lively, mm-hmm. so hopefully, uh, I'll wake up by the time we get into the meat of of the episode. But maybe for you to get my get my brain going, get me woken up here. You could tell me about uh, where they threw some some big chunk of metal at an asteroid recently, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, there was it actually got into news. I even had some people ask me about it, talking about the DART mission, which was DART is short for Double Asteroid Redirect Test, and NASA launched it back in uh, November of 2021. Just the last couple of weeks, it slammed into an asteroid. So that's what NASA does these days: takes <laughs> multi-million-dollar spacecrafts and slams them into asteroids at you know six kilometers an hour. No, six kilometers per second. Oh wow! So this thing has been going for nearly a year. Mm-hmm. Like has been shooting through space for that long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's surprising. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah. Well. You probably know that distances in space are very, very large, and so yeah. it takes a while, even if you're traveling really fast, it takes a while to get somewhere, and 
I'm not actually sure what the... So the asteroid is not that close to Earth. I mean, it's millions and millions of miles away. And just because of the way orbits work, you can't go on a straight line from one object to the next. You kind of have to get into a different orbit and then meet it. So okay. that's that's why it took so long to get there. So is is this asteroid one of the closer ones or not necessarily? Um, I do know that they picked this one. I mean, part of the reason they picked this one is because they wanted... Let me do a quick look here. The name of the asteroid is Didymus, which means twin, I believe. And so the reason it's called called that is because it's, it actually has a little moon traveling around it, or a moonlet, huh. um, which is kind of interesting. Um, so let me see here, see if I can figure out where it is exactly in relation to Earth. You can go online and you can see where everything is. Um I mean, it's it's in the realm of Earth. Like it's it's fairly um, it's fairly close to Earth. Like I think it's closer to Earth than Mars is, but it's not it's not like it's just out beyond the moon or something like that. I mean, it's very far away from Earth. Yeah, well, traveling at six kilometers a second for a year doesn't feel super close, but <laughs> <laughs> so they they were they were like tag you're it and what's 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 going on here? Like why are, why are we throwing things? At asteroids, which, by the way, shooting something at another thing that is moving and then like almost a year later it being hit seems seems incredible. I like unbelievable that that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially when you consider that the so you have Didymus, which is the large asteroid, and it's about, oh, it's about a half a mile in diameter, mm-hmm. roughly 0.4 of a mile in diameter. So it's it's I mean. It's small as asteroids go. I mean, there are mm-hmm. much bigger ones, but it's still, I mean, it would look quite massive if you would bring it to Earth and set it there. It would look sure. huge. Then it has Dimorphos, which is its little moonlet that is going around it. That is about 160 meters across, 160 yards across, mm-hmm. roughly. Yeah, to hit that, I mean, they hit it pretty much dead on. There's a really neat animation, so it... As the spacecraft was coming toward it, it took pictures every however many seconds up until the moment that it hit. And what was interesting is its last its last picture was a partial frame. Okay, so it was sending the last picture as it hit the the, the asteroid. <laughs> so not the whole picture came through. So did it hit the main asteroid or did it hit the moonlit asteroid? It hit the moonlit. Ah. It, it hit uh, Dimorphos. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. The reason they did that is because something that scientists have been thinking about is this whole thing of asteroids hitting Earth. And different places around Earth, you can see these huge craters. Some craters are still, there's one called the Behringer Crater that's out in Arizona. It's about a mile across, roughly. You can still go there, and I don't know if you can actually go down inside the crater, but you can stand on the edge and see it. And it's this huge crater that took obviously a huge amount of energy to to form. It was probably a relatively small asteroid, like maybe, I don't know, 60, 60 to 100 feet across, made this gigantic like mile-wide crater that's however many hundreds of feet deep. Wow. I mean, if you would have been anywhere near that crater when it happened, I mean, it, it happened thousands of years ago. But if you'd have been anywhere near when it happened, I mean, you you would have just been dead. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I mean, um, and if you weren't even 
it, it probably threw dirt and so forth in the atmosphere. It might have even darkened the earth. The earth's uh, it would change the way, kind of like when there's a volcanic eruption. Mm-hmm. It changes the sunsets and sunrises. Yeah, because of all the extra dust in the atmosphere, it likely could have done something like that. There haven't been a lot of really big asteroids that have hit recently. Probably the latest one that was fairly big was over Chelyabinsk, which is somewhere in Siberia and Russia. Okay. I think it was in 20, 2013 or 2014, this asteroid came in, and it, it never really, they think maybe a few smaller pieces hit the ground, but most of it just disintegrated about, oh, 20 or so miles above the ground. Mm. Mm-hmm. But when it disintegrated, it released a huge amount of energy, and it knocked out windows, and I think people were cut up. I don't think anybody died, but people were pretty injured by falling glass. You can see pictures online of of this big flash in the sky. 90 seconds later, this ridiculously loud sound comes, the shockwave, and blows out windows and huh. sets off car alarms and that was, they think that was maybe a hundred feet across or so. Oh, wow. I'm not sure about my numbers here, but I mean, it, it's pretty big, but as asteroids go, it's not really that huge. Sure. And I don't think they even knew that that was going to be hitting the Earth's atmosphere. Hmm. Sometimes you'll hear there's this asteroid that's going to be going between Earth and the moon, but it's not a concern. Well, this one, I don't think they even knew it was coming because from what I understand, now, this is something I read a long time ago, and I might be wrong, but I think it was coming kind of from the direction of the sun, and so we couldn't see it for that reason. Oh, okay. And so, what the you know, what does this have to do with the, with the DART mission? What they wanted to do is they wanted to slam a spacecraft into a small asteroid to see how it would change its, its orbit, to see how it would change the path that it was taking, because... What they're hoping is if there is some big asteroid that they, you know, they're, they're currently using telescopes to watch kind of the vicinity of Earth to see if there are any that are going to hit Earth, any big ones. And currently there aren't any anytime soon, but let's say in 10 years they see one and they can tell that it's going to hit the Earth in 20 years. Well, now they have a chance to maybe build a spacecraft and send it and hit it, you know, hit the asteroid and knock it off its off its path so that when it does actually go by earth it'll miss it instead of hitting it that's really what they're trying to do here sure so with how big this asteroid was that they hit how large was the spacecraft and will it be enough to actually knock it off orbit because it seems like Mm -hmm. uh, if it's of any size at all you're going to have to have quite a lot of oomph to get it off orbit yeah, so the spacecraft was 570 kilograms or 1,260 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, decently heavy. I mean, it was about half the size of the, about half the weight of a car uh, would be a good way to think about it. Um, they ex- they think that the mass of Dimorphos was about 5 billion kilograms. Okay. <laughs> so you can see there's a pretty big difference there. Right. But when something is, when something is moving six kilometers per second, it has a huge amount of energy. Sure. And what they wanted to do is they've never hit anything like this with, with a spacecraft before. So they had no idea how much it would change its orbit because it's not just the spacecraft hitting it. It's also when it hits it. Some of that energy is turned into throwing pieces of rock and dust, you know, back the same way that it came. Yeah. If you hit something, like if you if you throw something into a bucket of water, 
the water comes shooting out of the bucket. You've seen that before. Sure. And what that does is that means some of the energy is actually being shot back in the opposite direction, and that will actually slow it down. Um, so not just the, the impact of the spacecraft, but also the fact that some of the energy from the spacecraft was used to shoot rocks in the opposite direction um, will also slow it down. So they wanted to see what was going to happen. And I just watched a video just last evening, and I'll put it in the show notes by Scott Manley. I think we've maybe put some of his other videos in as well. Mm-hmm. Turns out that it worked even better than they thought it would. Okay. Substantially better than they thought it would. So it... it it slowed down. What they wanted to do is they wanted to to slow down the orbit of the asteroid. They wanted to um, so it was it was heading. Let's let's imagine that Dimorphos was heading east. Well, the spacecraft was heading west, so they were on a, a they were heading toward each other. Mm-hmm. So if the spacecraft hits something that's moving in this, you know, toward it it's going to slow it down. It's kind of like if if two cars hit head on, or if you have a a car hits a tractor trailer head on. It's going to slow the tractor trailer down. Gotcha. That's basically what happened here. But with the way orbital mechanics works, if you slow something down, it goes faster, <laughs> which sounds really counterintuitive. All right. But what it does is it slows it down, which means it drops it into a lower orbit. Uh huh. So it, it lowers its orbit. And when it goes into a lower orbit, it speeds up. Okay. <laughs> and And what is the benefit of this? So now it's closer to Earth? No, now it's closer to Didymus, which is its its um, the thing it's orbiting around. Oh, okay, yeah. That is, and they it they changed its its speed more than they expected that it would, which means that it worked even better than they thought. So, I mean, from what they've seen here, and you know, this was a relatively small spacecraft. If they had something that was much bigger than this Dimorphos asteroid that was coming toward Earth, they could launch a much, much larger spacecraft or make it travel much, much faster to give it more energy and and, uh, and direct it more than what this was able to. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was kind of a, a proof of concept, and it, it worked really well. So it's hmm. so now we don't have to be afraid of being hit by an asteroid. <laughs> well, I don't know that you have to worry about it anyway. <laughs> Because they are, I mean, the the previous one, the previous big asteroid event that happened was back in 1908, I believe. It was in uh, Tunguska, Siberia. For some reason, asteroids love Siberia. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because they're so hot and they want to cool down. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh, that one was much larger than the Chelyabinsk meteorite. It knocked over, I forget how many trees, it kind of exploded over a very remote area where there wasn't anybody living. And <laughs> yeah, well, they certainly weren't living afterward, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> it exploded and knocked over a huge amount of trees over a huge area. So it was a massive amount of energy. You know, when these things explode, it's on the order of like several atomic bombs or a large atomic bomb. I think Chelyabinsk, they estimate it was like 300 to 400 kilotons hmm. of TNT, which was about, oh, I'm doing some mental math, and uh, 20 times the size of the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, wow. roughly. That's a lot of power. Yeah, if one of those, 
you know, most of the Earth is covered with water, and so most asteroids will break up or impact in water. So it's not a huge concern. And then there's large swaths of even land, like Siberia or Sahara Desert, that nobody really lives in. So not much will be damaged. But if you could imagine an asteroid like this breaking up over top of London or New York City, I mean, it would be tens of thousands of people, even maybe hundreds of thousands of people would be killed. Yeah. Which is why they're why they're trying to, to make sure this doesn't happen. Yeah, that makes sense. They already know that it affected some, but are they are they waiting? The I don't know exactly how orbits and all this work, but I imagine that you it's going to take some time before you can see everything that's going to be affected by this orbit. Mm-hmm. Because if you move these two objects closer together, isn't it going to even shift what happens with the big object, the uh, the actual um, asteroid itself, or maybe not? I don't think it's going to change the orbit of the bigger asteroid that the smaller asteroid is going around. It's mostly just going to change the orbit of the smaller asteroid. Gotcha. Okay. They uh, they intentionally picked this because they weren't, I mean, it was far enough from Earth that it was not going to, like anything they did was not going to make it head closer to Earth. <laughs> yeah. That would be uh, kind of some, some irony there if that happened. But yeah, that's not... That's not a danger at all. And it took a couple weeks. They So they, they had it hit, hit this smaller asteroid, and they were watching it with telescopes. And it was a pretty major dust cloud, debris cloud, came off of it when it hit. Then they kept watching it, and they could watch how it changed its orbit around its larger asteroid. And it, it uh, definitely slowed it down. So they've, they've had a couple weeks, and they've been able to see how the orbit has been affected. And it's been quite a bit, so... That is incredible. Our tax money at work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so this topic is one that that, uh, you chose. Mm -hmm. I didn't talk to you any about where this idea came from exactly, so I'm not sure exactly where you're headed with it, but you're wanting to know if if the church is alive. (laughs) So let's talk about let's talk about life a little bit here. Yeah. Well, when you're listening to a sermon, you're supposed to be listening to the sermon and getting something out of the sermon. But sometimes there's something that's said in the sermon or a scripture in the sermon that connects with something I've been thinking about or it just brings up an idea. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happened here. And I can't actually remember who was preaching the sermon, but <laughs> they mentioned, uh, yeah, he mentioned that some verses from Revelation there were, you know, talking about the letters to the churches. And one of, in my Bible, I have a New King James Bible that I use. And in that, the letter to the church of Sardis, uh, it said uh, a letter to a dead church or something like that. The little heading that was, you know, this isn't the actual Bible text. It's just yeah little headings that kind of explain. So you can quick zip around and find the different miracles of Jesus or whatever. And it said, letter to a dead church or the dead church. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds kind of sounds kind of rough. Yeah. I mean, he has a lot of things to say to the churches. And and I, so I'll just go ahead and read it. And starting uh, Revelation 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. 
be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Uh, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. That's just the first couple of verses, and it continues on. But those that whole thing of a dead church, this is a topic that likely many people have thought about, that well, the churches in the states are, are kind of dead. They need to be revived, this whole idea of revival. You don't need to revive something if it's not dead or if it's not dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have CPR to revive people that are on the edge of death. Yeah, It just kind of made me think about that and start thinking about not just my church in particular, but just churches in general. You know, are we alive? What makes a church alive? And so I know you down there in Peru, you're very much involved in trying to plan a church. And you've thought a lot about what a church is, what a church is not, what it takes to make a church that's alive. And so I figured I would kind of, there'd be a discussion we could kind of get into here. Uh, with my limited experience and your more extensive experience, and especially in a different area of actually trying to plan a church, um, I thought we could have a discussion that maybe some people would would find interesting. Mm-hmm. Before we maybe jump into into that, I'm curious what you can pull out of these few verses. So he says, "You read, you're dead." And then he says, mm-hmm. strengthen what remains, that's what's ready to die, mm-hmm. and perfect works and so on. Mm-hmm. So what are what do you pull out of these few verses? What is he saying? What, is, what does he mean by, by you're dead and, and so on? What are we looking at? Well, it's interesting that he says here, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. So I'm guessing that meant that other surrounding churches – they believed that this church in Sardis was alive, was a very lively church. But, of course, Christ, who is speaking here, knows that you're, that the, this church is actually dead. So we have a couple things here. Be watchful mm-hmm. and, strengthen the things that ha- th- and strengthen the things which remain. So there's two things there. We need to be—this uh, church was asked to be watchful, I guess, uh, be more attentive, maybe— um, yeah, just push back if I'm saying something here that's not quite accurate, but <laughs> be, be watchful as far as like I'm, I'm envisioning this church is maybe going through life. They're not thinking through things. They're not being watchful. They're just kind of proceeding forward without much thought, possibly. And so these things are, there are certain things that are dying in their church. And so Christ is saying, watch, know what's going on. And then there are some things that you have which are still alive. Strengthen those things that are still alive. And maybe watch for those things which are dead and revive them, bring them back to life. Yeah, I uh, was looking at these verses in a Spanish version. And in verse 2 it says, uh, instead of be watchful, it says wake up. Mm-hmm. And then, then it says revive what is essentially what is salvageable mm-hmm. and then talks about your, your work's not being complete. Mm-hmm. Make, this makes me think about when, when Jesus told uh, uh, Peter and John and uh, who was the third disciple to, to wake up when he was in Gethsemane, he told them mm-hmm. to be watchful. So what are we, 
what are we watching for? Uh, I guess that we don't fall into temptation, but we also have this call to be watchful uh, from Hebrews about keeping our eyes on on Jesus, who is both our beginning and our the ending of our faith. Maybe part of it is in I don't know what a, what was going on in, in Sardis, but thinking about uh, some dead churches today, maybe some of the very bigger churches in the world or the bigger denominations, it feels like the very, very large ones, it's easier to see in in those movements that they've taken their eyes, their watchfulness off of Jesus and who he is, mm-hmm. what he calls the church to, to be. And the, the focus is a lot more on who we are as an organization or a culture or a heritage. I'm not quite sure how to say it, where um, maybe it'll be easy to just pick on the Catholic Church, for example, because they're one of the largest, if not the largest mm-hmm. in the world. I think from from our perspective, we might be able to say, not looking at the individuals in in the in the in the denomination, but looking at the the whole <laughs> the whole beast as as a whole, that it feels like the Catholic Church is more is more focused on being the Catholic Church, like all of their entrapments and 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 yeah, system of of priesthood and all of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's very little focus on on Jesus himself and in his teachings what do you think about that yeah i mean if we're supposed to watch what are we supposed to watch for what was it that sh- that the spanish said again can you that there in the first part of verse 2 it says wake up okay mm-hmm. wake up and revive what is what is save salvageable mm-hmm. yeah so that was kind of what i was the picture i was thinking and didn't do a great job explaining maybe is it's easy to kind of sleepwalk or um, just kind of follow follow maybe the the traditions and and not that traditions are wrong, but follow them without really conviction or intention or I'm not quite sure what words I'm looking for here, but the traditions are helpful in but following them in and of themselves does not give you salvation and also. Yeah, I can eventually, if you're just following that, it's going to be a dead faith if there's not that connection to Christ. There, there's a, yeah, I wish there would be more in, in these verses talking about what they need to do. But this is kind of what we have, and so we have to, to glean from it what we can. Had we talked about in on the podcast ever the book that I was reading hmm, a year or two ago on church planting movements? can't recall. I think I think you maybe mentioned it. Mm-hmm. So that book came to mind again, thinking about what is a, lo- a living church and what is a dead church. And in their in their studies and their research, they had uh, ten things that they found every uh, living or vibrant church had. I don't have that uh, list in front of me at the moment, but one of them or one of the first ones was prayer. Mm-hmm. Then there was a focus on the word as the basis of, of truth. And then, um, a focus on, on Jesus and what he was about. And so some of the, some of the first of the 10 points 
do kind of like grab this whole idea of mm-hmm. um, watchfulness and how does it say here works or obedience? Mm-hmm. So um, I first read read that heading, the dead church, and then I started thinking, well, okay, it's dead, but what's makes something alive? I've mentioned that question already. Then I started thinking about, well, as I oftentimes do, I think about parallels in science. Uh, what makes something alive? What makes something not alive? And believe it or not, in biology, biology is the study of life. So they actually have a list of characteristics that something must meet to be considered alive. And we have it in the biology textbook that we're currently working on at Christian Light. And uh, I, I jotted those down here, and I'll just go ahead and list them here. There's about seven. Now, there are different lists, and some of them overlap a little bit, but these are the seven we decided to go with in our course. First one comes from pre-existing life. Next one, made of cells, needs energy, senses and responds to change, grows, matures, and dies, contains DNA, and reproduces. Mm -hmm. Those are the characteristics of biological life. And I started thinking, like, maybe there's some spiritual equivalence to these different characteristics that would kind of help us think through what makes something alive, uh, maybe in a spiritual sense. So maybe give maybe give us an example of how to apply these um, seven points to something to show that it isn't alive in biology, and then we can try to flip that around to... To, uh, spirit, to the spiritual application. One thing, the last couple of years, what would you say has defined the last couple of years, Sean? <laughs> Is there any particular event or... <laughs> oh, let's uh, just go with COVID. <laughs> yep, yep. So what caused COVID was a virus. It was specifically the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which was similar to a virus that kind of came around back in the early thousands, maybe called SARS, just straight SARS. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty deadly virus. Thankfully, COVID was not nearly as deadly. But this virus was killing many, many people. And depending on where you get your statistics, um, millions of people have actually died from from COVID. Uh, You actually dropped something in the show notes here. It said 6.5 million. Mm -hmm. I think all of us have probably known somebody who died from COVID or complications from it that exacerbated the previous conditions. So all this death and upheaval in world governments, and we're now, I would say, likely in a global recession or moving into a recession. And Mm -hmm. a a part of that is probably due to COVID and the the reactions to that the governments did to try to keep the economies going. It, It had unintended consequences. So now we're possibly moving into a recession. And that is, that's a lot of havoc (laughs) that this little uh, virus has done. But what's fascinating to me is viruses are not considered alive. (laughs) Okay. So they do have genetic material, but they, they actually are more like a parasite in that they can't survive on their own. They can survive outside of a host for a certain amount of time. But what they do is they get into a cell And from what I understand, they maybe get some of their energy from the cell that the cell makes, from the food that the the host's body is is digesting. 
they reproduce using the cell's own genetic machinery that to make uh, proteins and and other molecules like that. So they th- there is some debate about it, but a lot of biologists do not consider viruses to be alive because they cannot reproduce on their own, oh. and they have to take energy from other. There's just various various boxes that aren't ticked when it comes to viruses, so they're not actually considered alive. Okay. Yeah. All right, I think I'm following. So if we if we look at a church and we're trying to see is it alive, how are you going to apply your <laughs> uh, seven points here to uh, to figure out? Yeah, well, I would. I'm actually curious. You have the list of characteristics there in front of you. Are there any that kind of stick out to you? Is there a, a like an immediate spiritual connection that you can see? Well, the the one that that jumps out at me right away is. You have grows, matures, and 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 dies. And so, when I think about life in a church, I tie that to the word growth in my mind, mm-hmm. and maturity would go along with that. Uh, obviously, we know, according to scripture, that churches have the potential to die, and we've seen uh, dead churches, empty church houses, if, mm-hmm. if nothing else. So that one, that one jumps out at me. Yeah, the one that probably stuck out to me more than anything else is the term reproduces. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that all life has, I mean, everything from bacteria to sperm whales to jellyfish, mm-hmm. they all reproduce after themselves because, you know, they eventually die. If they don't reproduce, they're going to be gone. There yeah. won't be any more jellyfish or or bacteria, but they reproduce. They reproduce in very different ways, but they all reproduce. Mm-hmm. Uh, plants, plants reproduce. Uh, sometimes they reproduce by pollination, um, and you make seeds, and those seeds sprout. Sometimes you have asexual reproduction, where you can take a cutting from one plant and stick it in the ground, and it'll turn into a new a new tree or that sort of thing. But there's different ways that they reproduce, and as far as a church, if a church isn't reproducing, if it isn't, you know, you could say gaining, you know, bringing more people to Christ or even starting other churches, it feels like it's maybe dead. Yeah. And I think we've maybe talked about this before on a previous episode. We talked about, I think that might have actually been a Seven Habits episode on For What It's Worth. We talked about whether whether something is you know whether somebody is alive or dead that things that are dead need to have outside influences to move them somewhere whereas something that is alive it has its own will and can move different places um you mm-hmm. know one of the things you need in a funeral is pallbearers because i mean quite obviously the, the deceased person <laughs> yeah. can't move themselves into the grave yeah in in that uh that book, Church Planting Movements, that I've talked about before, in the, the 10 points that every every uh, active church movement had, there are two that jump out that tie in with reproduction, which is what they have in their list called multiplication, and then the other is rapid conversion. And so they, what they found was living churches, if you want to call if you want to say it that way, um, didn't just grow, but they grew exponentially. There was a multiplication pro- process. So it wasn't you started with three people and then you went to four, but it was three and then six and then 12 and so on. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, rapid conversion tied in with uh, living churches are are vibrant to the point where this is going off of the research in the book where uh, you're not going five years and 10 years and 20 years with only seeing one or two converts. But once the ball gets rolling with conversion and evangelism and so on, then people start coming in in much more uh, higher and and faster numbers. Mm -hmm. So that ties in with your reproduction here. The other one here that stuck out to me is made of cells, and that might not seem quite as obvious as some of the others. All living things have cells, and now you do have bacteria and other organisms that are single-celled, but many organisms are multicellular. You have many cells working together. They're usually um, more complex in a lot of ways than single-celled organisms, and each of the different cells have different functions. So you have some cells... You have some cells whose job is to pump uh, fluid, or you could call it blood, through the body. You have other cells that are digesting food. You have other cells that are moving the body. You have other cells that are structural supports for the body, so it doesn't just turn into a big sack of jelly, which Mm -hmm. um, if you are a jellyfish, that's not a huge problem. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're on land, it is a problem. So... That made me think about churches are made up of many, many people, many cells. You could think of each person in a church being a cell that has its own function, mm-hmm. its own role in the church. And if if a cell is injured or is diseased or whatever, then that the, you know the whole body suffers. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, with with gangrene, you have a problem of a cell, you know, cells that are dying, and those cells have to be cut off from the body, or the rest of the body will become diseased and die as well. Yeah, and I think there's maybe a somewhat of a parallel there with in church. We know about um, like excommunication. It's not something that we like to do, but sometimes it it's necessary mm-hmm. to to excommunicate somebody because they are not um, following Christ, and there's that danger of them harming the rest of the the members or the cells in the church. Many members make up one body. So we get that idea from, mm-hmm. uh, what is it? First Corinthians 12 and maybe Romans 12 too. Mm-hmm. And obviously the one about needing energy, uh, that is easily, easily paralleled to the power of the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. So I can see that one. Yeah. Senses and responds to change, maybe even, is tied in there as well, uh, being directed by the Holy Spirit, being guided into all truth. Well, I think that kind of ties into the verses there in Revelation. Be watchful or wake up. There, you know, there are changes that come in our culture. There are changes that happen in the church. We need to be able to to see those changes. We need to be watchful but then we need to respond to the change. So Christ says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. So that's be watchful with senses. And then the strengthen is responds to change. So it feels like there's a pretty direct parallel there. Then we already talked about grows, matures and dies. Um, then the contains DNA. And I'm kind of curious if there's <laughs> anything, can you think about what that is? Well, I would, I would say that, 
DNA is, is somewhat like following the pattern uh, of of what we find in Scripture. That's mm-hmm. how I would maybe apply it if 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 I were. I'm I'm not sure if I'm trying to uh, really f- force these seven points on yeah on <laughs> mm-hmm. on our model here, but if if the church, from my perspective, an ideal church is trying to look to Jesus and just repeat as closely as we can what he did, what his teachings are, what the principles are, and make a new a new body thinking about the way humans work. You're taking DNA from the parents and you're making another human mm-hmm. that is, in a sense, just like them. But in a way, there are some slight differences, even though you're using some of the same DNA packages. I know it's not uh, uh, a clone, but well, that's what we're trying to do, I think, even in the church, looking to Jesus, looking to the early church, looking to the teachings of the apostles as well. Mm-hmm. and trying to make that apply to today. Yeah, that was that was my thinking when I was thinking about how this applied is, I mean, DNA is basically instructions, instructions on how to build something, um, instructions on how to operate something, which, you know, in our bodies, it tells our bodies how to, how to build itself, how to repair itself, how to run things, how the immune system works. It, it's, it's basically, to use a computer analogy, it's the operating system of the body. Uh-huh. That is, yeah, like you said, scripture. I think there's also maybe an aspect of the spirit as well mm-hmm. that would, you know, where, where scripture maybe doesn't speak to something, we have to call upon the spirit and, and ask for direction. So that's kind of what I think there. Um, a living church will have this this operating system that tells them what to do, what not to do, how to operate. And I think each individual Christian needs that as well. We need to be directed by something. Yeah. Uh, if we're not being directed by God, we're being directed by our, our baser nature and by Satan. So we need to have that DNA um, DNA written on our heart. I don't know if I'm mixing yeah. metaphors there. But. <laughs> well, we probably are, but I, I, I see the connection there. So that leaves only comes from pre-existing life. Mm-hmm. So in... In biology, where that application right is that there is is the the dad and the mom creature, mm-hmm. uh, and those are the pre-existing life that that creates the new life. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I believe so. And so I think it maybe in a sense overlaps a little bit with reproduces, except it's kind of the the um, like it can't come out of nowhere. You can't have the back years ago. Many years ago, they believed in this thing called spontaneous generation, uh-huh. which uh, Louis Pasteur did some famous experiments that proved that that was not correct. They believed that things like um, maggots and different, you know, food spoiling. They believed that that just came out of the air. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, that it just just popped out of nowhere, and they proved that that was not correct. That there were actually organisms that maybe you couldn't see. Mm-hmm. But they were there and is what was causing, you, know, you had flies laid eggs on rotting meat, which caused the maggots. The maggots didn't just come out of the rotting meat. There were people that actually believed that was the case. So it's, you know, things reproduce, which then kind of leads to, comes from pre-existing life. It's kind of a cycle. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure. It, it maybe overlaps with reproduces a little bit. But you could also say that our church comes from 
it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from a tradition that stretches all the way back to the early church. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's part of what it is. Maybe maybe as a church that's alive, we need to actually have a sense of our history um, and where we come from. So yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure how that particular point applied to a church that's alive, but mm-hmm. I figured I would. Since it was in our textbook, I figured I would throw it in and we could try to see what worked and what didn't. So we are here in Peru working at uh, planting a church, and we obviously are coming at it from an Anabaptist tradition, but the new converts don't maybe care so much (laughs) what the heritage is, Mm -hmm. and we don't really push that as the, the key point. We're not trying to to push people into a church or to get people to become members of an organization, but rather we're trying to present Jesus and his gospel. And then the, the steps that follow are, are that you end up being a member of the church. And so they kind of go hand in hand, but Jesus is first and the primary focus. So in, in that sense, I'm not sure that, that knowing the history of the church for them and the heritage is super important. Mm-hmm. But thinking about John three and being born, born again, which is absolutely crucial for, for new life in the church. Every member needs to be born again. There you're, you're, you have all the aspects of the Godhead, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit working together to create, uh, new life in a repentant person. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it is coming from pre-existing life coming mm-hmm. from, from God and through that whole process uh, of spiritual rebirth and you have new life. So it's, it's kind of a thing. We're not, when we become Christians, we're kind of tapping into, into power, into life that's already there. We're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps Right, right. Mm-hmm. That there's life we're we're kind of tying into, and that's what allows us to be reborn and become alive as well. Because in a sense, that's what's happening is, you know, we were dead, but then this pre-existing life revived us and brought us into life. In the Church of Sardis, they were a living church at some point, and then they died or were dying. So we've got these seven points of what maybe creates life, but also when you think about sustaining life, how to keep, mm-hmm. uh, so we we're looking for eternal life, right? <laughs> yeah. And I had to think about John 14, Jesus said he is the life. And then he talks about living in him and this idea of, of abiding in him, dwelling in him, living in, in him. And that's where our life comes from. Mm-hmm. We have the metaphor of, of him being the vine and we being the branches and then the evidence of life being the fruit. So what what connections or thoughts does that give you in, in tying in what we're talking about here, a living church? Yeah, I thought about that earlier when I was talking about how you can take a cutting from a plant. Because, you know, we are, this is more speaking about Gentiles and Jews, but we're grafted in into that living plant, which is, that the living vine, which is Christ. And yeah, he does say there in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. 
And there's various times in John, uh, Christ says, I'm the, the living water, the living bread. So I think that a living church needs to be very much abiding in Christ, which you've kind of already mentioned, um, that that is, that's not optional. That is what is needed for there to be life is that we need to be abiding in Christ. Um, and the, the whole metaphor of a vine, I find kind of fascinating because you can, you can take a vine and that vine is getting all of its nutrition through the, the roots, you know, the, you know, what the, the main trunk you could say, um, like it's, it's use a, a tree mm-hmm. and the branch, as soon as you cut that branch loose from the trunk, it starts to die and it relies wholly on the trunk and the roots underneath the soil to, to gather to gather water and nutrients from the soil so it can grow. And so I think that's how it is with us in Christ. We have to be abiding in him so we can actually have that life. And, and you had jotted down about Galatians 5. It talks about the fruit. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's pl- plenty of scripture that talks about those who are alive will be bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. That's another aspect of a living church that we don't really, is not really in these characteristics of life. I don't think there's anywhere it says uh, produces fruit, <laughs> but I think that that is very clear in scripture that a living church will be producing fruit. Right. And so in John 14, he talks about if a, if a branch isn't part of me, isn't in me, isn't living in me, then it'll die and it'll be cast out into the fire. Mm-hmm. But he says, if there's a branch that is in me, and the branch doesn't bear fruit, then I'll cut it off and uh, cast that into the fire as well. And so just mm-hmm. abiding in Jesus isn't enough if you want to think of it that way. There has to be both an abiding and a and a, a proving or a, an evidence of that connection, which is fruit. Mm-hmm. We have an example in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit, and I've heard a number of sermons focusing on that it says fruit of the Spirit and not f- fruits. So it's not like you can choose, I'm going to have two of them and not the other several. Uh, but the fruit is going to be evidence that has all of these characteristics. Like it's both mm-hmm. uh, red and round and sweet and so on. Mm-hmm. That's that. Those are its characteristics. So we're looking for that in in our lives, and of course we're looking at individuals. We're looking at groups of individuals too. But my, I had a question for you. What is the connection then between external evidences and internal life? Things that are alive move on their own. They are they're proactive. They're self. I don't know what the term is. Um, so I would say that something that is alive inside will be actively producing other things. Uh, there'll be evidence of that on the outside. Of course, you, I guess you could have, have those that there isn't really anything inside them. There isn't any inner life, but they're still, you would maybe say producing fruit. And I think the Lord even says, even says in the scriptures that that um, that the Lord can even take that and make something good out of it. 
I can't remember the exact reference, but I'm pretty sure I've read it somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I'm afraid I don't have the best answer. I mean, what, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, I don't have the reference in mind here, but Jesus gave the idea of without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can't bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And so we can have some external things that make us look good. Maybe those would be like the leaves on 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 the tree or on the vine. Mm-hmm. But without the Holy Spirit, you can't actually produce the fruit that that Christ is looking for. So then thinking about what we're looking for in a living church and and how some of the some of the things that we want to see are <laughs> reproduction, uh, you know, new members, um, new churches being planted, the church moving across. Uh, the world across the nation and then it doesn't happen it doesn't happen in my church my church has the same pretty much the same members in it that it had uh, 10 years ago or even 20 years ago except for the ones that have died off Uh, this is a common problem and so then we hear preachers saying well it's not numbers that matter it's uh you know who 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 the core group is so is that true that it's not numbers that matter? Is it true that reproduction is not a a true signal of of life? Mm. No, I I mean I the more I've thought about this, the more I've been convicted that reproduction by a church is a very important part of of a living church. I guess it doesn't always mean that you're it wouldn't necessarily always mean that your local body grows, um, you know, from, from bringing people from the outside. Of course, they oftentimes grow from the inside because you have new children. Um, but there's there could be, I'm just kind of thinking through this here, there could also be people in the congregation that go to other areas, work in other areas. And so it's not like they're bringing those new Christians back to local congregation, but they are, there is, there are people going out and working in the vineyard, just they're not necessarily bringing the people back. So I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, I think so. I think about what Jesus said. He, he, he said, if you go someplace and there isn't growth, if there isn't rapid conversion, if there isn't uh, reproduction and your the gospel message isn't received, don't stay there pack up and, and go somewhere else where you are received and where there is the, there is growth, where there are new converts. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have a problem with <laughs> settling into a place and waiting too long. How long is too long? I'm not, I'm not going to give a number of, of years or whatever here, mm-hmm. but there, there does seem to be a, a direct command, explicit command from the Lord that if you're, you're not realizing new converts, then you're not in the right place or you're not doing something right. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be a, a key <laughs> characteristic here. Mm-hmm. For myself, if we, we feel as missionaries, church planters that are in another country and have a lot of our support and accountability to establish churches in the States, we feel that we're under a sort of um, 
a microscope maybe i don't know if that's right like we're in a bit of a petri dish to see if what we're doing is working and if the church is growing and occasionally we can feel like well why aren't these same expectations being put on uh on some of the churches that we're accountable to uh, why why does it why is it different when it's in a church planning setting than in an established fifty-year-old mm-hmm. uh, church, and maybe that's where Sardis was falling into was they were perhaps a generation or two old and were feeling just kind of okay with where they were. Jesus calls us to go and make disciples of all people, and that's a command given to to every disciple. So if you are abiding in Jesus, then this is one of the fruits that you will have is that you are discipling someone mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, give their life to Christ and then follow him. Or as Paul said, follow you as you're following Christ. So if that's not happening in my life as, as a believer, then something's missing for me, which means there's going to be something missing in my church. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It does seem like out of all these different different characteristics, it feels like this this thing about reproduction or that a characteristic of something that is alive is that it reproduces seems to be one of the bigger one of the bigger things because it's not just it's not quite as much focused on just just the organism or just the church itself it's it's going out from that. I'm not sure if that makes sense or not. It's it's not just trying to keep itself alive. Right, right. It's actually producing something. Yeah. Whereas, you know, all these other characteristics, it's things to keep the church alive, to help it grow and mature, and those are all very necessary. But the only thing that really means that it's producing something, it's producing fruit, you could say, is this whole thing of churches being able to reproduce. Um, and so it feels like, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily the most important one. The other, you know, all the others need to be there as well, but it feels like that could be one that maybe we tend to be a little bit weaker on mm. here in the States and I guess across the world really. And so is my church alive? I feel like there are many of these characteristics of life that it very much has, but then there are some that I feel that it's lacking in. and. The one thing that I also, when I was kind of jotting down a few notes about this, I was sitting there listening to this, well, listening to the sermon. I was, my ears, you know, the sound waves were coming in my ears from the sermon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was jotting down some of these notes um, that I also started asking, am I alive? Yeah. So each, each, each church is made up of cells. So each person lends their own vitality to the body Mm -hmm. and there's maybe some areas in my church that I feel like it could do better at, but there's certainly areas that in myself where I need to do better. I know that I am not maybe fully alive and I need to be revived. And, you know, what can I do? I'm, I'm not part of the ministry, the leadership. I can't get up and start preaching sermons about um, live churches and dead churches, but I can work on myself and try to, yeah, let's work on myself, and and I don't know if that can maybe you know try to help others as well um, to try to try to make the church alive that way. So, yeah, something I tell our brotherhood here when we're thinking about our church vision: Are we 
meeting our church goals? Uh, and are we, are we discipling people? Are we seeing people come into the church and so on? There is this tendency in all of life to step on others so that we feel like we're a little bit higher. So, uh, you know, if I'm not feeling good about my, uh, whatever it is, my, let's just say my physical health, my, my weight, then I, one of the first things I tend to do is look at the other guys in my life and say, well, at least I'm not as out of shape as Gary. And so then Mm -hmm. I'm doing okay. And this is something I try to remind our brotherhood here is like, if we're looking at is, is that church over there growing the way they should, uh, whether it's, you know, a church in the States or whether it's a church in another part of Peru or whether it's another denomination, or if it's a church in even a European country that we're aware of and we're saying, well, they're doing things wrong. They're not growing. And so the little bit that we're doing is better than they're doing. So then we feel good Well, the measuring stick is wrong. We should be looking to, to Jesus and that should be obvious. Uh, Jesus and, and his word and taking our cues from there. But it's so easy and we just fall into it over and over again that we're comparing ourselves among ourselves Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out if we're doing okay that way. But if we just go to the word and use that as our basis, we have really clear teaching and expectations from the Lord about what he wants his church to do and what he wants his church to be. And I think we can, it's a lot easier for us to know whether we're alive or not than we maybe sometimes think. Mm -hmm. But coming back to what you were saying about what can I do, this is something we do even on a local level within my congregation. So Maybe there are, maybe there are twenty other, or thirty other members in my church, and our church isn't growing the way that I feel like we ought to be. We're not reproducing. We're not bringing new disciples in from the community. So then I just give up because no one else cares. So why should I? Mm-hmm. But what we learn from uh, the Book of James speaks about this too. But we see it in the life of Jesus that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man has a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And so if you have all of those elements where your prayer is effectual, where it's fervent, it's the thing that you're most passionate about and where it's coming from a righteous life. So your life is, is, you could say, sold out, completely surrendered, completely dedicated then you're absolutely going to see results from only your life alone. So you don't need to feel, uh, if you're the listener to this podcast, that I'm the only person in a huge church and there's nothing I could do. If you are being, if you are fully righteous, <laughs> if you are abiding in the Lord, if you are fervent and and you're giving all of your energies, body, soul, mind, spirit, strength, to to Christ and really dedicated in prayer, even a a grain of mustard seed can of faith can move a mountain. So don't limit the power of God in in you. But what I found in my own life is that um, I'm kind of lazy <laughs> and yeah. I'm a little bit scared 
of going out and and actually believing in God and and what that means if I if I throw my life into that degree of service and that degree of like that doesn't feel good to mm-hmm. to this body to <laughs> like I want to go on vacation I don't want to go on a mission trip yeah I think that um what you said there kind of sums it up pretty well and I like what you said as far as what you know what I can do what we can do those of us that are that feel like our church isn't maybe where it should be uh, we have a concern that we do have many promises in scripture that prayer is is a good way to yeah uh it seems like oftentimes we we do what we can and then if that doesn't work we turn to prayer <laughs> and <laughs> right <laughs> you know it's it's the option of last resort sometimes and i fall into that myself way too often but if we start with that and continue um not just once or twice and then throw up our hands but continue i think that it will that that prayer can bear fruit and that if we are abiding in Christ, we will also be bearing fruit in one way or another with our interactions with our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church or even in the community that we're in, that people can see that there's, there's something different about us and we we have we're being directed by something different than what many of the people in the world are being directed by. Um, you know, we have that, those instructions written on our hearts that and we're being directed by the spirit, um, in a way that is against the, the, the culture and what human nature has us do. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be very powerful. Yeah. Maybe another simpler way to say about what I can do is, okay, if, if, if the thing that's missing from my church is that there's not reproduction, maybe my thought is how can I fix my church? How can I fix all the other members or all of us together to where we're all, you know, there's 30 of us members and we each are discipling uh, one other person. So that's 30 new disciples and uh, we disciple them for three years. And then there are 60 of us and each of those 60 have a new disciple. And we do that again, you know, we're just repeating that mm-hmm. and th- we can't make that happen. And so we don't do anything. But if the thing that's missing from your congregation, if you if you feel that that's true, is reproduction, well, then go out and make one new disciple. Like, you be the responsible one. And if you can make one new disciple for your congregation, suddenly your church has reproduction. And you, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you could say on your own, we don't want to think of it that way, like we're part of a body and so on and so forth. We don't need to get into that. But, like, you you could be the one limiting <laughs> that your church doesn't have reproduction. And so whether you're a tiny, a tiny, tiny church in Cusco, Peru, um, that only has a handful of members or a huge church in uh, wherever the, the Eastern seaboard of the United States, it doesn't matter. One person, you can make the difference in whether your church is reproducing or not. So go and make disciples of all people.
Okay, I'm going to try to track down this thing. Like, it is really bad. I should, here, I should send you a screen clipping of what it looks like. It's pretty horrendous. Okay, now it stops, of course. Oh, there it goes. Okay, I think I will actually dig or try to squash this thing. Like, I think other times they were in other rooms, but this thing is literally in this room and it's not cool. So, I'll be right back. Okay, well I wasn't able to I was not able to find him, so uh, I guess we can mention it at the beginning or something if you want to do so. <laughs> You can see the cricket on the waveform. <laughs> Not cool. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ah, oh, man, that that uh, that cricket. I wish I could kill it. <laughs> 